Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and dismemberment. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Joe and Tony Reynolds were living every parent's worst nightmare. By late January 2005, their 16-year-old daughter, Adrian, had been missing for four days. They hadn't heard from her at all. None of her friends seemed to have any clue where she might have gone. It was like she'd vanished into thin air. Joe tried to hold on to her hope. At any moment, Adrian might call or maybe even walk through the front door, but it was hard to keep the doubts at bay. Then at 2 a.m. the morning of January 26th, the phone rang. It was the police calling from the front steps. Joe's hand trembled as she opened the door. The officer didn't say anything at first. He could barely look her in the eye. Joe wanted to run away, to hide, to do anything that might keep her from hearing the horrible truth. Adrian wasn't coming home. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last week, we talked about how Adrian Reynolds befriended two other teenage outcasts, Sarah Kolb and Harley Quinn. But the fast friendships quickly turned sour, kickstarting a bitter feud between Adrian and Sarah. This week, months of tension finally reach a breaking point. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now 
Listen for free on Spotify. In December of 2004, 16-year-old Adrian Reynolds was the new kid at school in desperate need of a friend. Just when she thought she'd found one in fellow 16-year-old Sarah Kolb, it all blew up in her face. Sarah suddenly turned on Adrian, getting mad enough to threaten her with a knife. And the worst part of all was that Adrian had no idea why everyone was against her. She tried reaching out to Sarah with notes and calls. If Sarah wasn't going to forgive her, she could at least offer an explanation. But no matter what Adrian said or did, Sarah refused to explain. And all the while, the bullying continued. If anything, Adrian's pleas for closure only irritated Sarah more. Soon, she zeroed in on a single callous refrain. She told Adrian that if she really wanted to make things right, there was only one thing to do, kill herself. Adrian had never felt hatred like this before, especially considering that she'd only known Sarah for two months. But she could tell that Sarah was serious. Before we go into some psychology, please note, I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. Teenagers experience emotions in a different, more intense way than adults do. Feelings come on hard, fast, and with little clarity. In 2018, Dr. Natasha Balin examined the literature on emotion in adolescence. She found that studies consistently showed emotions are especially potent for teen girls. This doesn't excuse Sarah's bullying, but she may have believed the stakes in the situation were life or death. She thought Adrian posed a threat to what she held most dear, her image and reputation, and she would go to war to protect them. So Sarah turned her entire group of friends against Adrian, or so she thought. While most were happy to play along in front of Sarah, Many of them didn't share her intense hatred, including Sarah's best friend, 17-year-old Harley Quinn. Sarah didn't know it yet, but she was slowly losing her grip on Harley. In the past, it was easy for Sarah to string Harley along, keeping her close. Harley had always harbored a crush on Sarah and hoped that one day they could finally be together. But by this point, Harley was starting to lose faith no matter how hard she fought it, she just knew that Sarah would never feel the way she did. That might be why Harley started making nice with the enemy. Secretly, of course. Harley and Adrian passed notes and spoke on the phone most evenings. It was during these conversations that Harley finally gave Adrian the context for Sarah's endless bullying. Harley admitted to Adrian that no one else really hated her. They were just following orders from Sarah. Harley also told Adrian about Sarah's secret plot at the party, how she told all the boys that Adrian wanted to hook up. In Sarah's mind, it was all a loyalty test and Adrian had failed. After months of bullying, Adrian finally understood. And now that she knew, she felt free. 
All this time, she had been beating herself up for some unknown sin she'd committed against Sarah. But Sarah was the one being unreasonable, and Adrian finally felt strong enough to tell her that. Adrian wrote Sarah one last note and let her have it. Her little test was messed up. Sarah herself was messed up. And now that Adrian knew the truth, she realized Sarah wasn't worth being friends with after all. She went on to point out that everyone else still liked her, even Sarah's so-called friends. And she closed the letter with a warning of her own. She wasn't going to roll over and take it anymore. The best thing Sarah could do was keep Adrian's name out of her mouth. It was like tossing a match on a puddle of gasoline. Sarah was already sure Adrian was trying to replace her. She saw the note as hard proof of that. Sarah's head buzzed with fear and fury. She was ready to do whatever she needed to take down Adrian Reynolds. But she didn't retaliate right away. She figured she didn't need to rush it. She had all of winter break to plan the perfect revenge. Meanwhile, Adrian was still processing Sarah's bullying. Writing her final note had given her some closure, but that didn't mean she wasn't hurt. And she still couldn't let go of the idea that someone out there, even someone like Sarah, didn't like her. When class resumed in January of 2005, someone at the school noticed fresh cuts on Adrian's wrists. The campus psychologist called Adrian's stepmom, Joe Reynolds, to come pick her up. Joe knew that Adrian had self-harmed in the past, but didn't know what brought it on this time. At first, Adrian didn't want to talk about it. Joe never seemed to care what she was going through before, so she didn't want to open up. But Adrian was also tired of handling so much on her own. She needed someone to have her back, an adult who could tell her what to do. Giving Joe the chance to be that person, Adrian poured her heart out. She explained that Sarah hated her for sleeping with someone else, and now everyone was calling her names. She felt so hated and alone that when Sarah had told her to kill herself, she actually tried to do it. Adrian might have expected Joe to say, I told you so, for choosing the wrong friends, but she never did. For the first time, she seemed to finally understand Adrian's struggles. She wasn't just a moody, troublemaking teen. She was going through something really, really difficult. In those moments, Joe acknowledged the part she'd played in Adrian's loneliness. She too had rejected Adrian and made her feel unwelcome, and she was sorry. Upon hearing those words, Adrian was stunned. None of the adults in her life had ever apologized to her for the hurt they'd caused. For the first time in a long time, she felt like she had the support she needed. But back at school, things were the same as they had always been. It might have been the start of a new year, but everyone was stuck in the same old drama. Sarah came back from break with a new boyfriend, Sean. This sent Harley into a tailspin. She tried to numb herself with drinking and drugs and practically stopped going to school altogether. Maybe out of desperation or maybe just for fun, 
Harley took her friendship with Adrian to the next level. The pair started hooking up, but their dalliances stayed secret. In public, Harley continued going along with Sarah's bullying campaign, leaving Adrian as confused as ever. Harley eagerly strung Adrian along, soaking up her attention, but she made it clear to Adrian that their relationship would never be anything more than a secret affair. At the end of the day, she would always choose Sarah. And when Harley was alone with Sarah, she tried to use the new relationship to her advantage. She lied to Sarah, claiming that Adrian was the one who pursued her. Any mention of Adrian set Sarah off and Harley delighted in riling her up. Harley mistook Sarah's anger about the relationship for jealousy. Finally, she thought Sarah was the one pining for her, but she was very, very wrong. Sarah was jealous, just not for the reasons Harley hoped. The relationship was another threat to Sarah's control over her crew. Harley was her friend, not Adrian's. As January drew to a close, Sarah reached the end of her fuse. She was ready to put an end to the situation permanently. Coming up, drama turns deadly. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Who forced a famed explorer to lose his way? What did a missing Hollywood starlet leave behind? And how could the heiress to a Chicago candy fortune just vanish? Every Thursday on Disappearances, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. On Friday, January 21st, 2005, 16-year-old Adrian Reynolds thought she would be able to end a months-long feud with her classmate, Sarah Kolb. Someone told her that Sarah was finally ready to call a truce. After everything she'd been through, Adrian wasn't looking to be friends, but it would be nice for Sarah to stop making her life so miserable. Maybe it was naive, but Adrian was willing to forgive and forget if it meant she could have some peace. Walking onto campus that day felt different, lighter. She hoped things would sort themselves out. But Sarah came to school with a different idea about what closure really meant. She planned to settle things, but peace wasn't what she had in mind. For her, the morning air was thick with the promise of violence. Harley was thrilled by Sarah's rising rage and tried to stoke the flames. The angrier Sarah was, the more determined she'd be to follow through with her plan. Casually, Harley let it slip that Adrian wanted to have a threesome with her and another boy. The lie worked. 
Sarah got even angrier. She wanted things done and fast. Soon, word reached Adrian that the day was not going how she'd hoped. There wouldn't be a truce. Adrian did her best to avoid Sarah, but she couldn't hide forever. When the bell rang for lunch, Sarah found her target in the hall. Adrian froze as Sarah cornered her. A crowd quickly formed around them. By this point, everyone knew Sarah planned to do something to Adrian, and they didn't want to miss it. Sarah yelled and screamed like always, careful not to actually touch Adrian while still on campus. But just as it seemed like things were really heating up, everything stopped. Sarah suddenly got quiet, apologizing and hanging her head as if she was ashamed of her actions. The sudden about face gave Adrian emotional whiplash. For whatever reason, she chose to go along with it. It seemed like Adrian was willing to find the good in Sarah for the sake of ending their feud once and for all. Harley took up the role of peacekeeper, promising she could talk sense into Sarah and make things right. Somehow, she convinced Adrian to leave with them. In spite of all that had just happened, Adrian got into Sarah's car. There are multiple diverging accounts of what happened that afternoon, but there are a few things we know for sure. Sarah was driving while Adrian rode shotgun, and Sean, Sarah's boyfriend, was also in the car. For a moment, things almost felt normal again. They were just a group of friends going for a drive. Sarah asked if everyone was okay stopping at Taco Bell for something to eat. Adrian wanted to get home, but she wasn't in a hurry, so they pulled into the parking lot. As soon as the engine stopped, Sarah dropped the friendly facade and confronted Adrian about her relationship with Harley. When Adrian refused to back down, the full force of Sarah's rage broke loose. She grabbed a fistful of Adrian's hair and pulled, practically yanking the girl into her lap. Sean tried to get her to stop, but it was far too late. Without loosening her grip, Sarah screamed that if he didn't like what was happening, he could leave. The last thing he saw before getting out of the car was Sarah with her hand on the back of Adrian's neck. In Harley's version of the story, she did nothing as the two girls battled in the front seat. She claimed she only stared out the window beside her and smoked a cigarette. But at some point, Adrian broke free of Sarah's grip, got in a solid punch and clambered into the back seat with Harley. Adrian was basically in Harley's lap when Sarah got a hold of her again over the seat back. This was the moment when Harley finally got involved. According to her story, she grabbed Adrian's arms on impulse, helping to keep her down while Sarah gripped Adrian's neck and squeezed. Regardless of her motivation, Harley's actions in that moment were a deciding factor. Though many of the details remain obscured, law enforcement were eventually sure of one thing. Sarah could not have strangled Adrian to death on her own. Sarah didn't let go until Adrian went limp. Harley could tell Adrian was dead just by looking at her. Her lips and face were blue. This is another moment where the details remain vague. Initially, Harley told police that she couldn't believe what Sarah had done and was overcome with shock. 
but others, including Sarah, testified in court that Harley wrapped a belt around Adrian's neck to make sure she was dead. Regardless of how it happened, reality quickly settled in for the two girls. They'd just killed someone. If they didn't want to get caught, they needed to act fast. Sarah peeled out of the Taco Bell parking lot. Harley was still in shock when they pulled into the garage at Sarah's house around 2 p.m. But Sarah had a plan. She knew they needed to get rid of the body. Looking around the garage for something useful, she spotted a red plastic gas can and an old tarp. Perfect. Back on the road, Harley asked Sarah what they were going to do. Sarah reminded her that her grandfather had a farm about an hour away from Moline. There, they could find a secluded spot and burn the body. This clear strategic thinking isn't something many people would be capable of at a time like that. Sarah's ability to manage the situation points to a lack of feeling, and that could suggest something far darker about her personality. In 1996, psychologists Lillian Fields and Andrews defined stress immunity as a lack of typical reaction to traumatic or stress-inducing events. Many people hoped that they'd be useful in a crisis, but there's something decidedly concerning about being completely unbothered by a dead body in your back seat. While Harley lit cigarette after cigarette, desperate to quiet her racing mind, Sarah was unfazed. Once they reached the farm, Sarah and Harley wrapped Adrian in the tarp and dragged her to a spot in some woods. They were fairly sure they couldn't be seen from the road. Then they poured gasoline over the tarp and lit it with a lighter. But movies and TV made it look a lot easier than it actually is. Regular gasoline doesn't burn hot enough to destroy a human body, especially not outside in the dead of winter. The fire blazed for about half an hour before going out on its own. When Sarah checked their handiwork, she was disappointed to see the body was more or less intact. She told Harley they would have to go into town for more gas. By the time they returned to the body, it was after five. The sun was down and the woods were dark. Even after a second attempt, the body refused to turn to ash. Burial wasn't an option with the ground frozen solid. The girls needed a new plan. But before Sarah could come up with another idea, she saw movement out on the road. It was her grandfather's truck. Like frightened mice, the teens scurried away from the body, jumped into Sarah's car and took off. Hoping they wouldn't be spotted, Sarah didn't turn on her headlights. They made it to her grandparents' house shortly before her grandpa did. Both grandparents were surprised to see Sarah, who never made visits on her own. Sarah tried to play it cool, but by this point, her facade of control was starting to crack. She was jumpier than usual and her grandparents could sense something was up. Confirming Sarah's fears, her grandpa asked why they'd run out of the woods so quickly. She shrugged it off, saying he'd scared her. He didn't seem to buy it. When he left the room, Sarah and Harley made a quick exit to avoid more questions. They made a third unsuccessful attempt to burn the body before heading back home to Moline. 
Before they left, Sarah tossed some brush over the smoking pile. At this point, they were at a loss and had no idea what to try next. So they decided to just forget about it. They met up with friends at Harley's house. When they got there, Harley's dad had some startling news. Tony Reynolds had just come by. He was looking for Adrian. She hadn't shown up for her shift at work and someone else from school told her parents she'd left with Harley and Sarah. The precarity of the situation hit the girls all at once. As long as a body existed, they were vulnerable. Sarah knew she'd have to come up with something fast, but for now, she just wanted to forget about it. She called a friend, Nate Goddard. He and Harley had been friends since elementary school, and he was a part of the local party scene. That night, he'd just scored some cocaine and was happy to share. At some point while they were getting high, Sarah got a call. It was Joe, Adrian's stepmom. In a nervous voice, she asked Sarah if she'd heard anything from Adrian. Sarah kept her cool, telling the story she and Harley had concocted. They claimed they'd given Adrian a ride after school. She asked to be dropped off at the McDonald's, not too far from her house, so no one would see her in Sarah's car. They hadn't heard from her since. Sarah put on her best concerned voice. She and Harley would have taken Adrian all the way home, but they didn't want to get her in trouble. Sarah told Joe she wished she could do more to help. If Adrian called her in the meantime, Sarah promised to phone the Reynolds immediately. Sarah was pretty sure her performance was convincing, but after she hung up, she felt more stressed than ever. She and Harley hadn't expected things to move so quickly. They needed to figure out what to do with the body. But life was already getting in the way of their plan. Sarah had a shift at the local movie theater that afternoon, and she didn't want to arouse further suspicion by skipping out. She and Harley needed an extra hand, and they knew just the right person for the job. Nate had gone home once the drugs were gone, but he picked up the phone again when Harley called. Feigning a casual voice, Harley told him that she and Sarah were coming to get him so they could hang out. Once he was in the car, he immediately picked up on the weird vibe. Seemingly out of nowhere, Harley started asking him some seriously dark stuff, like if he thought he could kill someone and what he would do if he saw a dead body. Trying to laugh it all off, Nate asked if they'd killed someone. Their silence was enough of an answer. Harley wasn't going to speak out of turn, so it was Sarah who told Nate the terrible truth. Harley nodded along, affirming her version of events. By the end of the sordid tale, the trio were back at Harley's house. Before she left for work, Sarah made sure Nate understood that they needed his help. They would call him tomorrow. Then she left with Harley staying behind to babysit Nate and make sure he didn't call the police. Nate and Harley did the same things they usually did. They got high and listened to music. It could have been any other Saturday, but this time the drugs didn't help Harley forget her troubles. Her thoughts kept returning to the dead body waiting for her in the frozen woods. Meanwhile, 
If Sarah was feeling the same pressure, she sure didn't show it. Her shift went off without a hitch, with Sarah finding ways to do as little actual work as possible. Finally, Harley met up with Sarah at 10 p.m. Sarah could see her friend was worse for the wear. She tried to reassure Harley that everything would be fine. They both needed to get some rest. It had been a stressful two days, but everything would be over soon. Tomorrow, they'd finish cleaning up their mess. Then, neither of them would have to think about Adrian Reynolds ever again. Coming up, Sarah's hubris knows no bounds. Now, back to the story. On January 21st, 2005, the feud between 16-year-olds Adrian Reynolds and Sarah Kolb came to a deadly end. Sarah and her best friend, Harley Quinn, lured Adrian away from school and strangled her in the parking lot of a Taco Bell. Now they needed to get rid of the evidence before the police figured out what happened. And the authorities were already getting too close for comfort. The night after the murder, following her shift at the movie theater, Sarah received another call from the East Moline police. They wanted her version of Friday's events again, this time for the official record. Sarah took a deep breath and went over it all. She said they'd gone to Taco Bell, where she and Adrian exchanged some words and a couple blows. Eventually, they made up and Sarah dropped her off at McDonald's. She hadn't seen or spoken to Adrian Reynolds since. The officer wanted to know why Harley hadn't mentioned anything about an argument in the car before. Thinking fast, Sarah said she'd asked her friend to lie because she knew it would make her look bad. The officer seemed to accept what she'd said. Sarah hung up, feeling like she'd played the situation perfectly. Now, she just had to finish destroying the evidence. Just before noon on January 23rd, Sarah and Harley picked up their friend, Nate Goddard. The three teens headed to Sarah's grandparents' farm where Adrian's body was waiting in the woods. On the way, Sarah and Harley filled Nate in on the plan. They needed him to help dismember the body with the hacksaw they'd asked him to bring. Sarah figured if they scattered Adrian's remains all over the place, the police would be less likely to identify the body. It's unclear why Nate went along with all of this. The most important thing to him at that moment was that his friends needed his help. And just like them, he jumped first and asked questions later. So when they finally made it to the spot where Adrian's charred frozen corpse lay, Nate got to work. On the whole, studies show that teens tend to act more impulsively than any other age group. Not only that, but a 2014 journal article concluded that teens whose friends engage in impulsive behavior are more likely to do so themselves. Nate and his friends were always doing wild things. Even in a case like this, it probably didn't ever occur to him to refuse to help. But for her part, Sarah did refuse to do anything more than supervise. As Nate severed the head and arms, Harley put them in a trash bag and took them back to Sarah's car. They planned to hide those remains separate from the rest to make identification harder. Once the legs were separated from the torso, Nate shoved them into a nearby foxhole. 
After an afternoon of dismembering a former classmate, the teens were starved. So they took a break from their grisly errands to get a bite to eat. While they did, Sarah thought about the best place to hide the rest of the body. She settled on Black Hawk State Park. The 200-acre riverfront forest afforded them plenty of hiding spaces. Even if the police chose to search the area, it would take forever to find anything. It was perfect. The teens decided to go there right away, stopping by Sarah's house to grab a shovel. When they got to the park, they only hiked about five minutes down the main trail before choosing a spot. Sarah handed Harley the shovel and told her to start digging. But the ground was just as frozen there as it had been at the farm. Nate took the shovel and stabbed the ground until he found softer earth. He'd just started to dig when they heard the sound of metal on metal. They'd happened upon an old manhole cover. It took both Nate and Harley to move it. The cement pipe below seemed to provide the perfect, ready-made hiding place. Harley lugged over the bag with what was left of Adrian Reynolds and unceremoniously tossed it into the hole. She and Nate then replaced the manhole cover, kicked some dirt over it, and that was that. Or so they hoped. Harley wasn't so sure it could be that easy. Not only were the police still searching, but Adrian's parents had gone to the media. Her picture was plastered all over the news and printed in local newspapers. There were even homemade flyers popping up around town. Harley was right to be nervous. By Monday, January 24th, the East Moline Police Department had begun working with the Illinois State Police. Contrary to what Sarah believed, the police hadn't bought her dropped her off at McDonald's story. It was clear that Sarah and Harley were hiding something. Sarah and Harley thought disposing of the body would bring them peace of mind, but they were wrong. With each passing day, they became more nervous. Still, they tried to play it off. Both girls went to school that Monday, for a while anyway. But before the afternoon, they left. Harley could barely function. Sarah tried to assure her that they would be fine, but it seemed even she was losing faith. That afternoon, the EMPD asked Sarah and her mother to come to the station for questioning. The pair showed up at the appointed time with their lawyer in tow. Investigators were positive they were on the right track, especially when she refused to take a polygraph test. When she got back home after the interview, Sarah called Harley and told her about the lawyer. Immediately, Harley went from nervous to terrified. Sarah had gotten a lawyer without her. Suddenly, it no longer felt like they were in this together. Feeling backed into a corner, Harley turned to her parents for help. They were aware that Harley knew the girl who'd gone missing, if only because Tony had showed up at the house looking for her. But they were completely baffled when Harley said she needed help finding a lawyer. She refused to tell them why. Still, her parents chose to help her. So when Harley was asked to come to the station on Tuesday the 25th, she also had legal representation with her. Harley barely held it together through the police's questions, but she didn't crack. Still, the fear and guilt were building. For days, 
Harley had barely slept or eaten, living only on adrenaline and cigarettes. When her dad came home from work that night, she could see he was struggling too. The guilt washed over her. It was her fault, all her fault. Finally, she broke and the truth poured out. Harley went back to the police station. This time, she told them the truth, or rather, a version of the truth that put as much of the blame as possible on Sarah's shoulders. That night, around 11 p.m., she led investigators to the pipe where they'd hidden Adrian's arms and head. From there, the rest of the dominoes fell into place. Sarah was arrested the next day, January 26th. She and Harley were both charged with first-degree murder and held on $1 million bail. The price virtually guaranteed the two teens would stay behind bars. Hearing about the arrest, Nate Goddard's grandmother searched her house and found the hacksaw they'd used. She called the police who picked up Nate from his job and brought him home. There, he sang like a canary, giving them every gruesome detail of his involvement. With so much evidence against the three teens, the court cases moved quickly. Sarah was tried twice for her part in Adrian's murder. At the first trial in November of 2005, she took the stand in her own defense. Despite all other witness testimony to the contrary, she did her best to pin the entire murder on Harley. Her story was rejected by almost everyone on the jury, but she did succeed in turning one juror in her favor. The judge reluctantly declared a mistrial, but this moment didn't bring much hope for Sarah's future. If there had been any lingering friendship between Sarah and Harley, the first trial had totally destroyed it. Harley was horrified by how willing Sarah was to pin the blame on her after everything they had been through. As a result, she became even more helpful to the state. She gave multiple interviews about her side of the story, showing Sarah to be a conniving, manipulative person. As a result, Sarah's retrial in February of 2006 ended in a swift conviction. She was found guilty of first-degree murder and for attempting to conceal a homicide. She was sentenced to 53 years in prison. At Harley's trial in April of 2006, the teenager was far more willing to accept blame for her role in Adrian Reynolds' death. She pled guilty and took a deal from the state's attorney in exchange for her cooperation. In the end, she was sentenced to 45 years in prison. Sarah and Harley have both filed appeals over the years, most recently in 2020. A judge denied Sarah's request for a resentencing in February of that year. They cited the original decision in which that judge called her a cold and callous person and basically declared her unable to be rehabilitated. Harley, on the other hand, was granted a new sentencing hearing. She was originally supposed to reappear in court on November 29, 2021, but the proceedings were delayed for an unspecified reason. Whatever comes of these legal battles, it's a story with no winners. Sarah, Harley, and Adrian were three young people each struggling with their mental health and nursing a desperate need to belong. From childhood, all Adrian wanted was to be loved. Befriending Sarah and Harley 
must have felt like the kind of connection that would last. Even when things started to fall apart, Adrian tried to make things work. Practically everyone gets roped into teenage drama at one point or another. This spat between Adrian and her two friends could have been nothing more than a blip in her life. Instead, Adrian paid the ultimate price. Her untimely death was a terrible tragedy. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back next week with another episode. For more information on the murder of Adrian Reynolds, we found Too Young to Kill by M. William Phelps extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Megan Hannum, with writing assistance by Georgia Hampton and Terrell Wells. Fact-checking by Haley Milligan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Thank you.